Well, good morning. If we haven't had a chance to meet, my name is Drew McCullough. I serve as one of the pastors here at High Point Church. And uh, Carterville Second Service, it's good to be with you. Uh, my wife and I, we normally attend the first service sitting over here. And then I head to East Memphis, so I don't get to be with you all very often, but I'm excited to be here. Uh, if you have your Bible, go ahead, open it up to Luke chapter 14. Uh, that's where we're going to be today. I'm excited to continue our series walking through the various parables of Jesus uh, that we've been doing over the past month or so. And uh, Parker told us a few weeks ago when we started talking about these parables that parables, it's a great definition, parables are uh, earthly stories with a heavenly meaning, right? It's easy to remember. Earthly story, heavenly meaning. Jesus spoke in parables to give uh, the hearers and us, to give us a picture and insight into the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. That's why, actually not the parable we'll read today, but usually a lot of times you'll see Jesus say, the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of God is like, can be compared to this, right? And Jesus spoke in parables kind of for uh, two reasons, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, but on one hand, he uses parables as these uh, kind of hard to understand, kind of hard to hear concepts and stories, because on one hand, he wants to draw the people that believe in him and truly following him to draw them closer, right? When you hear something that you're like, I'm, I'm all in on this, I don't understand that, it makes them get closer. But on the other hand, he also uses it, like we'll see today, to kind of divide a crowd, to, to say these, these things that are a little bit difficult to hear, to kind of drive those people that don't really truly believe in him, to kind of drive them away a little bit, to kind of split a crowd, right? And that's what we see in, in this passage. Uh, but Tim Keller pointed out that a lot of people in the world, they will admit most no matter what else they believe about Jesus, they will admit, man, he's a wise teacher. He's a great teacher, right? You'll, you'll hear people talk about that. Like, yeah, he's a wise teacher, but he's not really God. You're right. They may not believe that he's the son of God. They may not believe that he's the savior of the world. They may not believe that he is their Lord. But they'll, they'll say, yeah, he's a wise teacher. But Tim Keller pointed out, there are some things when you really dive into what Jesus talks about in the scriptures there's some things that he says, a lot of things that he says, like a lot of these parables, they're really hard. They're really hard to understand. They're hard to swallow. They're hard to follow, right? And what we see here in Luke chapter 14, this is a really difficult passage. It's a really hard passage, really convicting. So this definitely qualifies as one of those things that Tim Keller was talking about. And so now that we're all really excited to hop into this passage, if you can, please stand for the reading of God's word as we read this passage together. Luke 14, we're gonna start in verse 25. If you don't have your Bible, we're gonna have it up on the screen, but here we go. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned to them and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, 
even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all, uh, to finish, all who see will begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. This is the word of the Lord, and it's an exciting one, like I said. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the truth of your word. And God, I pray this morning that you humble every single one of us. God, as we break down this passage, as we look at this hard teaching of Jesus, God, we pray that you meet us where we are, soften our hearts by your grace, give us ears to hear, eyes to see your goodness and your worth. Lord, as I open my mouth, let it be your word heard, not mine. Let me decrease and you increase. And say this in Jesus' name, amen. You can grab a seat. So, as Jesus is traveling around, the first verse here says there was a great crowd that was following him, right? A lot of people were interested in Jesus, right? He was traveling around. He was a wise teacher, doing all kinds of miracles. People wanted to know more about Jesus. Tell us more wise things. Show us more miracles. And any, nowadays, any great leader or even some pastors, they would love to have a great crowd that follows them, right? Like you see people all over, like they, they want a bunch of followers on social media. We want great crowds to follow us. So you think maybe this is an opportunity for Jesus to give a little elevator pitch. Hey, keep following me. It's worth it. Go grab your family and friends. Bring them. Follow me. Here's a little promo for, for the Jesus movement. But that is not what Jesus does here. He turns around to this great crowd and he says something completely different. And here's why. Jesus knew in this moment exactly where he was headed. See, in the, in the story of Luke's gospel, Luke 14 is found in the middle of what's known as the travel narrative. Y'all say travel narrative. Great job. So it's found right there in the middle of the travel narrative because back in Luke chapter nine, you don't have to turn there, we'll throw it up on the screen, but here's what it says in Luke chapter nine. It says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. So what that means is Jesus knew it was time for him to lay down his life for the sins of the world and he says, it's time for this to happen. I'm going to Jerusalem, which is where the crucifixion and the resurrection, the story of Easter, all of that, it's where it happened, right? So between Luke chapter nine 
in Luke chapter 19, which is the triumphal entry, as we know, it's Palm Sunday when he finally enters into Jerusalem. Everything that happens between those chapters, it's called the travel narrative. He is headed one place. It's time for me to lay down my life for the sins of the world. Here we go. So in Luke chapter 14, he knows exactly where he's going. And this great crowd that's following him, he knows where he's going. And he, he doesn't want to be a good salesman and like get him to sign on the dotted line. Hey, keep following me. I'm going to hide all the hard stuff in the fine print. He says, this is what it takes to follow me. This is where I'm headed. And therefore, it's going to be a rough road for you. Here's what it takes to follow me. Here's the cost associated with following me. And he turns to this great crowd, gives them a little reality check. And he says, verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate, y'all say hate, does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, cannot be my disciple. It's hard to hear, right? It's kind of an ironic verse for me as a family pastor to read. An ironic verse for us to read the week before we do a family worship Sunday. Go hate your family. That's exactly what he says here. If you want to follow me, meaning if you come to me, what that insinuates is you're coming to me for salvation. If you want to be my disciple, go hate everyone that you love. Go hate them. What in the world? Hate is not usually a word that we associate with Jesus, is it? We usually associate words like love with Jesus. But he tells us here, hate. Isn't Jesus, isn't the Bible, isn't it all about love? Isn't Jesus, isn't the Bible all about family, isn't it pro-family? This is the same Jesus that in Mark 7 said, honor your father and mother. In Matthew chapter 18, he, he says, do not despise the little children, not just your children, the little children, all of them. Don't despise them. Luke 10, love your neighbor as yourself. Luke 6, not just your neighbor, but love your enemies. And then in John 19, Jesus is hanging on the cross, dying with his last breath. He looks and he sees his mom weeping and he sees his friend, John. He says, John, take care of my mom. I love her. Take care of her. Love her as your own. And then elsewhere in scripture, Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. 1 Timothy 5 says that not caring for your family is basically like being an unbeliever. It's like denying the faith. You can't do both at the same time. You can't claim Christ and not care for your family. So was Jesus just talking about all this love stuff to get people in and then say, all right, now go hate people, Right? Was he just contradicting himself? Is he pro-hate, anti-family? Of course not. That's not what he's saying here. What he's saying here has way less to do with our family and friends than it has to do with how much we love him. In the culture, in the Jewish culture, in their language, hate can mean two different things. On one hand, it can mean to actively hate something, to actively despise something. I personally actively despise brownies with nuts in them. I think it's ridiculous 
It should not exist. Do not cook them. If, if you have some at your house, just throw them away. There's no point. And don't argue with me about it. I'm, I'm right, you're wrong if you think otherwise. I actively despise brownies with nuts in them, okay? But on the other hand, hate can actually mean comparatively, relative. That if I love something so much, it's as if I hate everything else. So if I tell you, I love my wife so much, I hate all of you, does that mean that I despise you? I would think that y'all would say, no, we don't think that. No, you don't think that. It's, a, it's because I love my wife so much that even though I care for all of you, it pales in comparison. Comparatively, it's as if I hate you. And so that's what Jesus is saying here, is that not hate and forsake and throw away everyone that you love in your life. He's saying, your love for me should be so strong, so deep, that your love for everybody else, even the people that you're nearest and dearest to, should pale in comparison. That's what he was saying. He wasn't saying that we need to love him at the expense of or instead of our family, right? He sits here and says, honor your father and mother. Saying that your love for him should eclipse all the other loves in your life. So if we were to walk outside right now, right, sun shining bright, blue sky up there, some clouds, it's getting a little hot, second summer of Memphis. But if you walk outside, you look up, we can forget there's a bunch of stars in the sky, aren't in there? They don't disappear when the sun rises and suddenly reappear when the sun sets. Whoop, like they're gone, they're here. What happened? It's not this magic trick that, that God does every day. What happens? When the sun is in the sky, the sun shines so bright, it's as if the stars aren't there. They're shining, but it pales in comparison to the brightness of the sun. And that's what Jesus is saying, is your love for me, I want all your affection, your affection for me, your love for me, your desire to follow me must eclipse all the other loves in your life. Familial love, uh, romantic love, sexual love, brotherly love, parental love. I want, I offer a love that makes all of those as if hate. Makes all of them pale in comparison. And it's essentially the same thing he said in Matthew chapter 10. It says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He's not saying actively hate them, kick them out of your home. He's saying you must love me. I must be your love. I mean, thank goodness he's not telling us to get rid of all the people in our lives that we love, right? That doesn't make this any easier to hear. He's still saying, we must love him that much. 
That's convicting. Think about the person that you love most in your life. Maybe you're sitting next to them right now. Jesus says, your love for me must mean that you essentially hate them. That's convicting. As I studied this this week, it, it broke me. As I read this, I'm like, Lord, do I really love you like that? Because it is so easy for us to idolize the people in our lives, right? It's easy for us to idolize our friends, idolize our families, idolize our marriages, our children. Marriage is one of the most incredible gifts that God has given us on this earth. It's an incredible thing. But in almost every single premarital counseling session that I do, almost every single wedding I officiate, we inevitably end up talking about how we must love our spouse with a secondary love. Because it's, it's so difficult for us because we live in a culture of uh, rom-coms and Disney and Adele that say, hey, your romantic partner, they're your one and only. But they're not. They're, marriage is a great thing, but it cannot be your one and only thing. It will never fill you up and satisfy you, ever. You remember, if you were here last week, Parker talked about this, this broken cistern in the passage in the Old Testament that, that when we put our hope and satisfaction in these other things, it's like pouring all this water in this bucket that has a bunch of cracks at the bottom of it. It doesn't fill us up. They weren't made for that purpose. Marriage is a great thing, but it's a terrible God. But it's so easy for us to idolize our marriages. We should love our spouse and sacrifice for them. We should pursue one another. We should fight for oneness. But in reality, compared to our love for Christ, it should be as if we hate them. That's what he says. <clears throat> and then with our children, if you have kids in the room, even with the nature of, of, of children, they need us. They're dependent on us, right? We, we should provide for them. We should protect them. We should prepare them for the day that we kick them out of our home. We should do all those things. But in our culture, especially in the Southern Christian culture, it, we revolve our entire lives around kids, right? We will uh, do everything for them and neglect everything else. We, we will uh, neglect our friends for our kids' sake. We will be terrible stewards of our money and go in debt just so our kids get everything they want. We will let our kids drive a wedge between us and our spouse. We will let our kids' uh, sports dreams of being in the NBA one day take us away from the gathering of the body. We let our kids, and then God, he's an afterthought, if at all. So easy for us to idolize our kids. We love them. They're a great gift. Our friendships, so easy for us to idolize friendships. Some of my closest friends, they can go through some seasons of just terrible depression 
because their friends aren't as close to him as they used to be. Oh, this person didn't talk to me as much. You're wrapping your whole life around these friendships. We should have good friendships, but they can't be our everything. These people in our lives that Jesus says hate here, they are great gifts from the Lord. But it is so easy for us to love these good gifts and completely forget the good giver behind them. So easy for us to idolize them. But Jesus says, no, I must be your number one. Don't listen to Adele. I must be your one and only, right? It says me. I want your deepest affection. I offer a love that's greater. Of course, the paradox of the gospel is that as our love for Christ increases, our love for others inevitably increases by his grace through the spirit working in us. So the best thing we can do to love our people is to hate them. But he says you gotta hate them in comparison to me. But that's just the first part of the cost. He goes on in that next phrase and says, not just hate your friends and family, but you gotta hate your own life. And then he steps it up a notch and says, here's how you hate your own life. Verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, nowadays, when we think of a cross, what do we think of? We think of Jesus, right? We live in a world after Jesus died on a cross. We think of his love and his sacrifice, his forgiveness. But to this great crowd, Jesus had not yet died on a cross. All they knew about crosses was that the Roman Empire used them as an execution tool. That's all they knew. It was a tool of humiliation and suffering and pain and death. It's as if we were reading this and Jesus told us to not go bear our cross but to go strap ourselves to an electric chair. That's what these people would have heard. Again, what in the world? That's a strong statement by Jesus. Go hate, go strap yourself to the electric chair. But this wasn't the first time that Jesus said something like this about carrying a cross. Back in Luke chapter nine, about a week before he set his face to travel to Jerusalem, he said something very similar. It gives us a little insight into what he said here. Luke chapter nine, verse 23, we'll have it on the screen. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So in that verse, in Luke chapter nine, he equates taking up your cross, bearing your cross with self-denial, with self-sacrifice. But then he doesn't say bear your own cross here. He says, take up your own cross. Now normally when you we're going to be crucified when someone's gonna be crucified. We know this from Jesus' account, but also other historical texts, that when you're gonna be crucified, they would take a part of the cross of one of the beams and they would put it on your back and make you carry it to your execution site. It was a part of the punishment. Literally, you were forced to carry your own cross. But that's not what Jesus says in Luke chapter nine. He says, take up your own cross. The insinuation there is, hey, 
voluntarily, willingly denying yourself, take it up, pick it up out of surrender in self-denial. So back in Luke chapter 14, he tells this crowd, if you want to come to me, you must hate your own life. Your love for yourself should pale in comparison to your love for me. But not only that, willingly, voluntarily take up your cross every single day. Willingly lay down your life. Surrender it all to me. Your commitment to your own desires, your own plans, your own agendas, you gotta let it go. Lay it down. My study Bible, this one right here, it says it this way. It says, to bear one's cross meant to renounce selfish ambition and all right to control one's own destiny. It's death to a whole way of life. It's a great way of putting it. It says that selfish ambition it's all about me desires, what I want most, and my right to try to hold on to my life. I die to it. That's what it means. Now, in all seriousness, this passage right here, these verses, might be some of the most controversial things that Jesus says. Controversial to our culture that we live in. Like more than I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, this runs more contrary to the culture that we live in in 2022. Because we live in one of the most individualistic cultures that has ever existed, ever. Our culture is all about me. My desires, my plan, my agenda, my dreams, my happiness, me. Look at me. It's everywhere. If you hop on social media and just scroll through, which social media is not like, it's not from the devil, it's not evil, but it sure does expose a lot of the problems that we have in our hearts, right? If you hop on social media, you'll see things like, you do you. Doesn't matter to anybody else. You just do you. Live your best life. Don't let anybody stay in the way of your happiness. Do what's right for you. Don't listen to them. Do what's right for you. All you need to do is, you know what? You just need to love yourself. Just love yourself. That'll solve your problems. Love yourself. Does that sound familiar to anybody? It's everywhere. I was literally watching, uh, I didn't say this first service, it just came to my mind. I was literally watching that new uh, Clifford the Big Red Dog movie with my daughter on Friday. And it was all about just loving yourself better. That was, the end, that was the end goal. And I was like, I don't remember that in Clifford when I was younger. It's just self-love. We live in a culture that praises self-reliance. If you depend on anything else, anyone else, you're weak, you're shamed. We live in a culture that praises self-sufficiency. We live in a culture that, that highlights uniqueness and just being special. Just standing out, being different. We live in a culture that highlights uh, self-promotion. Look at me, everybody, right? Scroll through Instagram. Try to give me another thought that our culture lives for. 
All about me. Look at me. We live in a culture that says individual rights and individual desires take precedence on, over everybody else. It, does, it doesn't matter what it does to them. You just live for your happiness. It's your right to do what you want to do. We live in a culture that says nobody has the right to tell me what to do with my life. It's my life. You don't have a right to tell me what to do. And honestly, this way of thinking, this individualistic way of thinking, it flies in the face of any kind of relationship, like any kind of relationship. Like if you truly think this way, it flies in the face of any relationship. In marriage, if I were to just live the way I wanna live and do whatever the heck I wanna do, it's gonna make it really difficult for my wife to stay married to me, right? She can't stay married to someone who just does whatever he wants. Makes a terrible relationship. Uh, the people, uh, about two weeks ago, I did some premarital counseling with a couple that got married last night. And through our conversations, we started talking about the practical implications of two people that had lived on their own for over a decade, and now they're coming together in unity and oneness and marriage. But you know what that means? They're bringing their own calendars and their own schedules and their own time and everything, and they're bringing it together. They can't live the same way. When you hop into marriage, it's not just your roommates and you get to live your old single life. You have a different way of living. You have to deny yourself and sacrifice for the other, for the good of the marriage. You can't live that same life. And then uh, how about this one, parents? If I were to go home after this service and I tell my daughter, my two-year-old, and I say, hey, you don't have a right to tell me what to do. You don't have a right to have a, you don't have a say in how I live my life. You think that goes over well? No, because she's two. She needs me. She needs her mom a little bit more, but she needs me. She's dependent on me. When she entered the picture with me and my wife, it changed our lives. We have to sacrifice. We have to deny ourselves. We don't need to revolve our lives around her, but we do have to deny ourselves, sacrifice for her to raise her well, right? If you're a parent, you may not be able to buy new golf clubs because you have to buy diapers and they're expensive and they poop a lot. It, it, you may not be able to go on that vacation you wanted to go on because you have a teenage boy that lives in your house and eats your refrigerator weight of food every day. You have to make sacrifices. It runs in the face of that, this individualistic way of thinking. And then think of friendships. If you just go into every single friendship with this, it's all about me, it's all about my happiness, well, as soon as your happiness runs counter to someone else's happiness, your friendship's not gonna last very long. This individualistic way of thinking that we live in runs contrary to any relationship, but to a much greater extent, Jesus says, if you want a relationship with me, if you want to follow me, you have to deny yourself. You gotta hate your own life. 
got to surrender it to me. Following him, it's not about self-promotion. It's about self-denial. It's not about just more self-love. It's about self-sacrifice. And honestly, it's, you know, in a weird way, indirect, it is about self-love because the, the one who loves you most is the one that you sacrifice and surrender to. It's the best way to love yourself, kind of like the best way to love others is to hate them. But he says, what does it take to follow me? What is the cost? Everything. All of you. All of your affection, all of your allegiance, all or nothing. No middle ground, no in-between. And you can't say, well, I'm a Christian and everything. Like, I believe in Jesus, and I go to High Point Carterville. I'm just not into that part. Like, I don't know about that, Jesus. You can't say that. The reality is, you can't be a half-hearted follower of Jesus. He doesn't settle for undivided hearts. Sorry, he doesn't settle for divided hearts. He wants an undivided heart. He doesn't want a bigger uh, a portion of the pie, right? He's, you're at 10%, get me to 30 and then we're good. He doesn't want a bigger portion of the pie. He wants to be the center of the wheel that your entire life revolves around. He says, I must be your everything. All your affection, all of your allegiance. He says, I can't be your savior if I'm not your Lord. You can live your life on the basis of your feelings, on what the culture says, what the people around you say, what's easy, what's comfortable, or you can live it under the lordship of Jesus Christ. No middle ground. So it's all or nothing. So he lays all of his cards on the table. No fine print. What's the cost? Here it is. And then he goes into these two parables back to back. Verse 28, he says, For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or, second parable, What king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down and first deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Now, it's kind of interesting. When I was studying this, all the commentaries I read, zero of them spent nearly as much time talking about these two parables and breaking them down as they did the three verses earlier. Not nearly as much time. But if you look at these verses, if you look at these parables, you see they're very similar, but they're slightly different, right? In the first parable, there's a man who wants to build a tower. And I've never built a tower or a house or anything, Uh, but I have a friend who works in construction And I was talking to him the other day, (coughs) excuse me, and uh, we were talking about how before you you jump into a a construction project, you gotta sit down and you gotta say, okay, do we have the finances? Do we have the manpower? Do we have the materials? 
Do we, do we have the plans, right? I called them blueprints and he laughed at me because they don't call them that anymore apparently. But you gotta, you gotta sit down and look at these things and say, what's the cost? What does it take? You don't just jump into a construction project all willy-nilly and say, we'll figure it out. Because if you do that, you get into it, oh, we don't have the finances. Oh, we don't have the materials. Oh, the plans we had uh, were terrible and the building's falling apart, right? You have to abandon the project and then, like in this parable, it brings shame on you. You look foolish. It says uh, that people would see it and it says this man began to build and that word man is actually translated fool. They're making fun of him. They're saying this guy is a fool because he didn't count the cost. He just jumped on in. Jesus says, count the cost. And then the second one, a king is going to war and I don't have any friends to ask that are kings or military commanders or anything, but I've seen a lot of war movies Right? And in these movies, what do you always see before people go to battle? In like an older movie like The Patriot, you know, it takes place a long time ago, and you see these people in a tent, and they have those little figurines on like a little map, and they're trying to figure everything out. Or a newer movie with Navy SEALs, you have intelligence officers, and they have all the technology and everything, but they're having the same conversation. Where is our enemy? How many troops do they have? How many troops do we have? What's the terrain like? What strategies can we take? What are our options? Can we afford to go to war? They're having the same conversation. And if you look at this parable, it, the, kind of the difference a little bit, in the first one, a guy is just deciding to build a tower. In the second one, it's a king who has 10,000 men that he is risking their lives if he jumps on in. It's costly. We have to sit down and consider the cost. You don't just go into battle. So in both of these parables, you don't just start building, you don't just charge in the battle. What do you have to do? You sit down and deliberate. You sit down and count the cost. You sit down and consider the cost and make an informed decision. And that's what Jesus is getting at here. Here's the cost. Here's what's needed. If you're gonna come to me, if you're gonna follow me, if you're gonna be my disciple, make sure you understand what you're getting into. Make sure you count the cost. He wasn't looking for a leap of faith. But you hear, you know, I don't care if you can swim, just jump on in, we'll figure it out. He wasn't looking for a leap of faith from this crowd. He wasn't looking for an emotional decision. He didn't say, hey, if you, man, if what I just said made you feel good, just raise your hand. No, he says, go count the cost. Go consider everything I just said. And if you're all in and you truly believe who I am and who I, what I say I am, then the cost is nothing. Come follow me. That's what he says, consider the cost. And then he circles back and kind of summarizes in verse 33. He says, Therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And that word renounce literally means forsake, to bid farewell to, to say goodbye to. And it's written in the present tense 
meaning that it's a continual thing. Go forsake, go say goodbye to, keep going, keep saying goodbye over and over and over again. Similarly to what he said in Luke 9 when he says daily take up your cross, daily renounce. And it doesn't mean he's not saying, okay, go crowd, go sell everything that you have. Go do it right now and then come back. Go uh, get rid of all your family members and your friends. Go do that and then come back. But he's saying, I want all of your heart. Are you willing to do all that? Are you willing to hold your life, not like this, like here, Jesus, I'll give you this, but I'm gonna hold on to this, but holding on to your life with an open hand in complete surrender, saying, I'm yours. Are you willing to give up your reputation for his sake? Are you willing to say goodbye to your preferences in order to follow him? Are you willing to surrender your comfort when following him is really hard and difficult? Are you willing to say goodbye to that addiction, that hobby, that pleasure, that relationship if needed? that dream job if needed, are you willing to? Because the reality is following him and living for him, he calls us to give up our time, talents, and treasure. We talk about that all the time. It's living our life with an open hand of generosity and sacrifice. Living for him, likely at some point in your life, to some degree or another, it's gonna be bring ridicule. It's gonna bring persecution. It might be by a family member. It might be some, by some random person on Instagram. Why are you living that way? Why'd you make that decision? Why are you trying to talk to me about Jesus? Truly living for him and being his disciple, it's hard, it's difficult. Are you willing to say goodbye to anything and everything for the sake of knowing him and making him known? Now, I mentioned a minute ago that both of the parables are similar yet slightly different. And David Gutzik in his commentary, very briefly but beautifully, lays out the difference between these two parables. Here's what he says. He says, in the parable of the tower, Jesus said, sit down and see if you can afford to follow me. In the parable of the king, Jesus said, sit down and see if you can afford to refuse my demands. Remember the king, 10,000 verse 20,000. He didn't stand a chance. Can you afford to not count the cost? Am I willing to pay the cost of following Jesus? Am I willing to pay the cost not to? There is a cost, but there's also a cost not to. Remember, Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem for a purpose. He was on his way, set his face to Jerusalem in the middle of traveling there. I'm going to Jerusalem for a purpose, to lay my life down. I'm going to Jerusalem to the cross to sacrifice myself for the sins of the world. See, the reality is that even on our best days or our worst days, 
we stand completely guilty before a holy God. We stand completely condemned, deserving what our sin deserves, which is the very wrath of God. A righteous, just, holy, perfect God pouring out his wrath on you and on me. That's what we deserve. We, des- we stand condemned. But Jesus went to Jerusalem. And out of his great love for us, in Jerusalem, he laid down his life. He laid down his life on the cross, took the wrath of God for our sin so that you don't have to, so that I don't have to. So that as as Romans 3 puts it, God the Father remains just, giving sin what it deserves, but also the justifier of those who believe in Jesus Christ. Just and justifier. And the beauty of the gospel is that when we put our life in the hands of Jesus, we, we, we put our faith in him and we surrender our life to him. The beautiful thing of the gospel is that God no longer looks at us and sees our sin and the wrath it deserves. He looks at us and sees the, the paid in full righteousness of Jesus. We no longer stand condemned. There is no uh, condemnation for those who are in Christ. He looks at us and sees innocent. This person no longer has to die for eternity because my son took my wrath. See, all this talk of a cost, it's not that salvation in Jesus is is something that we earn when we pay the cost. That's not what it is. It's that the salvation and grace found in Jesus is extended to us but it can only be received by a humble, repentant heart of surrender. An open-handed heart. There is no such thing as a cheap grace. There's a high cost. The high cost of Christ's death on our behalf and the high cost of a joyful surrender and response. You see how that works? It says in 2 Corinthians 5, it says he, talking about Jesus, died for all. That, meaning so that, in response, what inevitably comes next, those who live in him might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and raised It said, Jesus died for you so that you open your hand and surrender your life and live for him. It's inevitable. It's it's our only reasonable response. That's why in, in Romans 12, when it says that in view of your mercy, O God, the first 11 chapters of Romans, in view of your great mercies found in Christ, our only reasonable response is a life of sacrifice, holy and pleasing to you, an open-handed, full surrender life. Jesus says there is a cost. Following him is not cheap. 
On one hand, it's the cost of living that sacrificial life like Jesus, also for Jesus. But on the other hand, it's also the cost, the ultimate and greater cost that he paid on our behalf. And we can only joyfully bear our own cross when we truly consider that he bared his cross for us. It's the only way. The only way we can really respond like this is when we see that he carried his cross for us. We can only hate our friends and family when we truly consider the fact that he took the very wrath of the Father on himself so you and I don't have to. We can only forsake all that we have when we truly consider the cost that he gave up his riches in heaven to live a life of sacrifice and pay a death that he doesn't deserve, but you do. We can only lay our life down when we truly consider the cost of the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, stepping out of heaven and laying his own life down. When we truly get a picture of that, it makes it easy. <laughs> it makes it joyful. But something that Parker read last week, I think it's worth reading again because it's from Scripture. But it says in Philippians 3, it says, Indeed, I count everything as, this is Paul, I count everything as lost, as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. But you know what? I count them as rubbish for the, in order that I may gain Christ. We can only let go of our lives and surrender when we see that Christ has already reached out to grab a hold of us. And it says that when he grabs a hold of us, no one will ever pluck him from pluck us from his hands we can only let go when we see he has reached out to grab a hold of us and that he is the only one worth holding on to uh, Tim Keller mentioned this I'm going to close with this but Tim Keller mentioned this and I think it's worth mentioning that this self-denial life of surrender it is a continual thing like we've said it, it's, it's a gradual thing we say, we say it almost all the time. Parker says it almost every single week. Is that when we put our faith in Jesus, when we say, here's my life, I give it all to you, we are instantly saved from our sin, penalty of our sin, removed, put on Jesus. The problem is, is that sin still exists. It is still present in us and around us. But by his grace, he gives us his Holy Spirit that over time, the Holy Spirit begins to overcome the power of sin within us and it begins to lose its grip on us. So over time, by his grace, daily we pick up our cross, identifying with Christ, remembering who we are in him, beholding him and his glory and his goodness and his worth and the cost that he paid for us and sin, we begin to loosen up our grip on our lives more and more. And the things that we try to hold on to, he slowly loosens our grip. 
It's a gradual daily life of denying ourselves but claiming Christ. Letting go of our lives and grabbing a hold of him. Because he does not promise his disciples, his followers, he does not promise us a life of the American dream and comfort and ease and fun and fairy tales. He does promise a life of joy, a life of purpose, a life of perfect love, but ultimately, those are only byproducts because ultimately, he just promises himself. Hate your family, hate your own life, take up your own cross, follow me, How is it possible? I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the truth of your word, no matter how incredibly difficult it is. God, we know that your word is true and perfect sharper than any two-edged sword. And that's because it doesn't just cut flesh and bone and muscle. God, it cuts straight to our soul. And so Holy Spirit, I pray that you do work that only you can do today. Lord, for those of us who have put our faith in Jesus and surrendered our life, Holy Spirit, we know that we still have sin in us. Help us to continually fix our eyes on you beholding the glory, beholding the beauty of Jesus. Loosen our grips on our own life. Continue to open it up because you deserve it all. But Father, for those who may not have gone all in, maybe they're saying, oh, I'm I'm a Christian and everything. I just don't know about that. Lord, I pray right now that you soften their hearts to see and consider the cost. But God, you are ultimately worth it. Knowing you is far greater than knowing anything else here. And Lord, I pray for those who haven't made that decision, that they go find someone at Next Steps or a friend that brought them, whoever it is, and count the cost and have that conversation. Do what only you can do. In Christ's name, amen.